Greetings, everyone. Hello to all of our guests and new faces that I don't recognize. Glad to see you here. You're all familiar with the scripture in Revelation 12 and verse 9 about Satan the devil and about the great serpent who deceives the whole world. And you've all heard messages about deceptions and about all kinds of false doctrines, false Christs, and false apostles. A deceived person can be a very naive, a very dedicated, a very sincere, and a very good person. I know lots of good people in nations where their religion and their culture is the antithesis to mine. I was very pleased and very impressed with the basic family structure, the attitude of the people, the cordiality, the generosity, just the goodness of the Jordanian people that I met. I was in many homes in Jordan where they just open up their homes and they just knock themselves out to provide you with a sampling of the greatest Jordanian food. Uh, doctors' homes, uh, educators, other people. We met many different families. But here are people who believe in Allah, whose belief is so almost fanatical, so extreme, that they will have a, a big callous place, like many of the pictures of Anwar Sadat, you will recall. It looked like he had some decorative red spot in the middle of his forehead. Well, that was actually a callus that was worn there from his habit of getting to his knees in complete prostration where he actually rubs the forehead on the prayer rug six times a day. I doubt that there are any people in this room who are such extreme or devout Christians that their knees are literally calloused. I've seen a lot of calloused feet in the Mideast, Central and South America and Asia where people don't wear shoes and in Africa. I've rarely seen any calloused knees. So you know when someone is so devout that they have calloused their forehead in getting on their Persian prayer rug six times a day, that that's a dedicated believer in Allah. No question about their religion. Yet we could talk on many, many subjects about life and even about the Israeli grab of the West Bank, and we could find certain harmony, certain mutual opinions and convictions and you just had to love the people. You understand that they are honest people. You can walk down the streets of Amman, Jordan. I have a very lovely ring that took me many, many years to gradually gather at a time when rings didn't cost what they do today. It's probably one of the possessions I own that has escalated in value. Most others have gone sadly down. But in any event, I would be very, very disturbed if I were to be let out of a taxi cab at about 3rd and Broadway or something in New York City with this ring on my finger. I would turn it around the other way so it would appear as if a little kind of a tarnished gold wedding band. And the diamonds in the ring would be clasped in my fist or else I would have it in my pocket or better yet at a safety deposit vault in the hotel where I was staying. Hardly any city or town in the United States that I know of would be a safe place to wear your watch, your ring, or your jewelry or for you ladies to walk along the street carrying your purse. But in Amman, Jordan, Throngs of tens of thousands of illiterate, poorly clothed Arabs just jostling one another in the streets, teeming, thick with people, poverty-stricken people in the main. You can walk freely with your purse or your watch or your wallet because of the teaching of their religion, of the Mohammedan faith now called widely Islam or the Muslim religion who believe in their prophet Muhammad. And because of the strictness of that religion and the ingrained belief in the strict and severe punishments for crime, 
which includes lopping off a hand for doing such a thing as even stealing a loaf of bread, those people as a part of their natural culture and their national consciousness are honest people by and large. Egypt, I've made the same comment time and again about Cairo, one of the filthiest cities I've ever been in. So they are sincere. And yet, as I look into history, and I study the monuments and the artifacts, archaeology, the Bible, I study etymology, the transliteration and translation of languages, the transmission of the text of the Bible, and you must begin at origins, you must begin at basic grassroots questions, is there a God? Is the Bible his word? Do the footprints of mankind really lead away from the Middle East? Is real history and archaeology compatible? Is archaeology compatible with the Bible? Or is the Bible rendered null and void by books such as Oaspe, or the so-called missing books of the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or other relics, fabrics, or fragments of various portions of codices that have survived the ages. And remember that history is merely the study of the garbage dumps of the past. There's very little left after a war has virtually obliterated a national library where it's all been burnt to the ground, the stones prized loose, and then new cities have been built on top of it. History and archaeology essentially are a study from the garbage dumps of civilization. How much could you come to know a thousand years hence about the city of Tyler, Texas, by going to where they have been burning rubble and garbage in a landfill for the past couple of decades, sifting through what little shreds or scraps you might find, and then come up with an erudite presentation of exactly what went on in Tyler, Texas in 1982? You couldn't very well. Yet all of these great religions have their symbols, their prophets, their holy men and women, and their beliefs. Now, we in the Western world of Christianity are a Judeo-Christian Protestant product of a nation called the United States of America. As such, your mind has been programmed. It has been programmed by everything that got into your mind from the time you were a tiny child your playground experiences, your acquaintances as a boy or a girl, your grade, and then your high school, and that's about it for most of us. If you went to college, you may have taken liberal arts or something else. Again, you had a smattering of information in certain specialized fields, but our education by and large has been very general, like a smorgasbord, a kind of a buffet, a little sample of this and a taste of that and a touch of the other, but without a great deal of, of information in depth in any given subject. I doubt very much if anyone here is a doctor of letters. I doubt if there's an LLD in the audience. I doubt if there are very many PhDs. Of course, those letters don't mean very much. As one person said, you know what BS stands for. It was kind of a bad joke, but he was a PhD. And everybody thought, ha ha. And the students chuckled. He said, well, MS is more of the same. And everybody got a good laugh out of that. And he said, I'm a PhD, and that merely means piled higher and deeper. Well, that was his attitude about his own degree. And I could understand that because of where he got it. There are a great number of educated fools in the world. I have seen papers done by people with PhDs after their name that should have been absolutely given an F or rejected in freshman or remedial English. PhDs who cannot spell. Don't ever let the educated make you stand in awe, because Jesus did say that the truth of God is revealed unto babes. If you were to study the very basic grassroots of history, archaeology, and the Bible, 
trying to determine the origins of Christianity itself. What is Christianity? Is it the real religion of the person known as Christos, one Christos of whom pagan Romans wrote, who allegedly was, and they used a Latin word then, crucified in Jerusalem, and who is supposed to be the person who gave to his disciples, who bequeathed to the world, the Christian religion. Now the symbol of the Christian religion is a symbol so well known as to be commonly taken for granted, dozens and dozens of them easily visible all over Tyler. If I were an architect and I were asked by the First Christian Church, or the Church of Christ, or the Baptist, or Methodist, or anyone else, to build them a church building, I would begin with one basic concept. And what would that concept be? Anyone here know? The concept would be, my church would be in a certain shape. The shape of the church on the ground would be in the shape of a cross. It would have a long, beautiful auditorium, probably a very high ceiling, a vaulted ceiling, but on each end near the front of the auditorium would be like a nave or maybe even a place or a parsonage or meeting rooms or choir or chorale practice room. And behind the altar, which would be right in the middle of the cross, would be other rooms perhaps for storage or whatever. And of course the high altar, the place where the pulpit would be, would be right where the two lines juxtaposed or crossed so that the building itself would be in the shape of a cross. Not only that, but my church would have to have a very high pinnacle. It might even, in its own architectural design, seem to soar into the skies like the Crystal Cathedral in California. And on the front of it, or right where the cross was, or on the back of it, or somewhere, would be a very high steeple, and adorning that steeple would be a cross. Then I would use other decorations, many churches do. My stained glass windows would have the sign of the cross. Perhaps the altar back of me would have a huge cross, and on it a picture of a person affixed there with a crown on his head of thorns, a person known to the world as Jesus Christ. Over in Revelation, the 12th chapter and the 9th verse, it says, Satan the devil has deceived the whole world. Is the United States part of the world? Is what we call the Western religion of Christianity a part of the known world today? Is it conceivable that the Christian world could be deceived after, lo, these nearly 2,000 years of the rise and fall of empires, of the development and the disintegration of civilizations, of the dynamic socio-economic changes that have sometimes rent nations apart, of the wars, the revolutions, cultural, social, and religious that have resulted in the redrawing of the maps of the world, that have resulted in the loss of literally hundreds of millions of lives, and that have brought us to this place of an arms race in nuclear weapons that could threaten the very extermination of all civilization. Is it conceivable to anyone in this room that even that most revered symbol of all of Christianity could itself be pagan in origin? I want to share with you some things. I want to even read a little bit a little later on some of the things that I have discovered in many, many years of research and something that I have rediscovered a little bit this morning and looking into it. First, let's notice Revelation, the 17th chapter, and verse 5. It is talking here about a great false church.
Back in Revelation 17 and verse 5, there's quite a terrible description of that false church when it says, Upon her, this woman arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones with this golden cup in her hand, as if the symbols of liturgical and ceremonial celebration, the woman was arrayed in all of these gorgeous robes and with all the gold and the precious stones and pearls, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And the description goes on to say this woman, which is obviously and is so believed to be by the Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, and the Church of England. It is believed to be the Catholic Church by all of Christendom of the so-called Protestant world. They universally accept this verse in the sixth or fifth chapter of Revelation 17 as being symbolic of Mother Rome. There is no disagreement among them, and that is not something that I hold to be true uniquely in the so-called Christian world, but something that practically, universally, all Protestants believe. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. And of course, you can read such books as Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is horrible reading, or study about the Spanish Inquisition, or read about that time when the five great patriarchs were virtually attempting to assassinate each other through war and attrition, how eventually there was only one patriarch at Constantinople, another at Rome, and that eventually through warfare and attrition one was left, and that absolutely contrary to the Catholic argument about the so-called succession of popes or the Petrine theory of the succession of one major apostle from Peter on down is absolutely untrue, that it was an evolutionary process, a social and a religious and a rather violent process that resulted after centuries in one powerful figure emerging in the church at Rome who is the Pope and through that emergence and on down today from the time of Constantine has come a succession of papal figures. What is this business about the mystery and about Babylon that it would have Babylonish, ancient, pagan, pre-Christian, anti-Christian symbols and practices and beliefs and mysteries in this religion? How many of you in this room have been to the great basilica of St. Peter in Rome? Anyone? Anyone here? You don't mean it. Usually you'll ask an audience and be a lot of hands go up because so many people have been to Rome. And it's certainly one of the first places you want to go see. I've been in that great big room and I've climbed all around up above it where you have winding stairs that go clear up on the roof and so on. Many, many times in that great basilica of St. Peter's right in Vatican Square. And you're impressed when you go in there with the incredible symbolism. Almost everywhere you look are eggs, like scroll work with an egg with leaves all decorated around it. And flies, everywhere will be flies etched in stone like icons. Geese, animals of various sorts, but flies and eggs. Maybe most of you have not read Hislop's Two Babylons. It is a book which is, of course, blacklisted by the Catholic Church, but a fascinating book about two Babylons. One, the ancient Babylonish religion and state of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the time in which Nimrod was building cities such as Laish, or rather Akkad, and the city of Babylon itself with its famous tower that was supposed to be a symbol to reach under the skies, the original skyscraper. And in Hislop's To Babylon, he reveals the origin of the symbol of flies and how the Egyptians worshipped flies because their science was so ill-advanced that they did not know where flies came from. And they merely supposed that it was a kind of a 
spontaneous emergence that if one left certain things out in the air, flies just came out of nowhere. Egyptians and Babylonians did not have microscopes and they apparently did not observe the little tiny eggs that were laid by other flies. And so when the maggots began to infest the meat or the rotting or decaying vegetable material, they didn't in remote science or any kind of suspicion on the part of any observers imagine that this was a cyclical process of flies laying eggs which became maggots which became new flies. And as late as the Middle Ages, there were some of the great teachers of ancient Greece and even late on into the Middle Ages that began to believe that they came spontaneously from putrefying meat. And finally, in an experiment, I forget what the year was, someone placed a thin piece of gauze over the top of a jar in which there was rotting meat, and lo and behold, maggots were crawling around in the gauze after a number of days because even the vapors and the odors were enough to attract flies, which laid their eggs, which hatched, and of course, presto, some maggots were born. Well, in those ancient civilizations, they worshipped the symbolism of life. Anything that seemed to have immortality or that could spontaneously arrive out of the earth. A cow died, and millions of maggots resulted. And this was marvelous to the ancient pagan Romans, Egyptians, Greeks, and Babylonians. So the fly became a part of the religion of an ancient pagan god. The god of flies was called Baalzebub. And Baalzebub, or Baal, was the god of some of the ancient races that were dispossessed by the advancing Israelites who were sent into the promised land. Baal really is a Hebrew word that merely means Lord, but it was the Lord of flies. And you will find in one occasion where an ancient Israelitish king sought to Baalzebub for a cure for a disease and was accursed of God for so doing because he sought to the god of flies instead of to the true god who was the healer, Yahweh Rophikah. Why, in the basilica that is supposed to represent the so-called Holy See, the Geheiligestuhl, as they say in German, where the Pope, when he sits on that Holy See, is infallible. Why would one find such an abominable insect that you housewives run around with swatters or hang sticky pieces of tape up or have spray cans and cannot stand the things when they try to land on your food? Why should a great Christian basilica that is supposed to be the headquarters of the great universal church be virtually festooned with flies? It was a question in my mind, and I wanted to find out why the flies? Where do the flies come from? So, of course, you look it up to find, well, these are ancient Babylonian and Egyptian symbols that long predate Christianity. But somehow pagans believed in them. So as the church began to grow, especially among pagan people, they allowed pagans to bring the pagan symbols right along with them, to have the same symbolism, but to say that it meant something else. So the flies on the walls and the roof and all over the cathedral of St. Peter don't mean Baal. They stand for the Christian religion in some mysterious way. So here are eggs, and of course we know that eggs are symbols of fertility. You know that what I'm about to share with you is probably so strange to your mind, it would almost be tantamount to somebody coming up and saying, you are not you. But guess what? We've discovered a slip-up happened in the hospital. 
and through blood tests and even taking your footprints, because they don't take handprints, mostly they take babies' footprints, we've compared and we've checked and we found out a couple of babies were mixed up in a hospital, and you're really not even you. You're somebody else. You're Joe McGillicuddy or you're, you're Alice uh, uh, Rabinowitz. You came from Jewish parents. All this time you thought you were Caucasian. You're not. You're Jew. And it would just say, you, you know, your mind would just be blown. You'd say, this cannot be so. This is absolutely not true. And you would argue with the person that told you such a thing. What I'm about to tell you may so shock some of your minds that you will think this cannot be true. And it seems at first blush that it really couldn't be true because you say, how could so many people be so deceived? Now to partially answer that question, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever in your life gone to a public library and simply taken one of the largest encyclopedias you can find from the shelf and looked up the word cross? Anyone? Well, then, how many of your fellow people out here in the streets of the world who go back and forth and in and out of their churches religiously, do you suppose, have done the same thing? And if they were to do so, which I did so this morning in my 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which happens to be the last edition, which had theological history, and after this, the 12th edition, and thereon, it became so laborious and so huge that they had to leave all of that out. So this is a very prized edition for theologians. And also my Dr. Bullinger's companion Bible. I never met Dr. Bullinger. I know nothing about him. This might be said to be a Bible with a Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia attached. With a lot of Bible helps, a lot of articles, very valid and worthy of further research. Or many other Bible encyclopedias or various encyclopedias where I've looked up the word cross. Now the cross of Christ is the most important biblical symbol. Every conceivable kind of a cross we see in our society. You'll see in motion pictures the Catholic priest holding the very great bright brazen cross to ward off a poltergeist, which means knocking ghost, you know, a demon that knocks. And there's a movie coming out now called Poltergeist. They just can't seem to get enough of exorcist and all of that type of demonic kind of movie to frighten people out of their wits and to keep them aware that there's a demonic and a satanic world out there that they can toy around with. But you will see the priest holding the great crucifix up and the demon is supposed to be frightened away. Medals, such as the Iron Cross of Germany, badges, crowns, decorations, tapestries, the design of churches, crucifixes, State seals, national symbols, medals, rings, pendants, pectoral medals, belts, decorations of every sort include the cross and the cross in an infinite number of varieties. Crosses with fleur-de-lis, crosses with all sorts of radiating lines drawn from it, crosses that look more like an X or a solar wheel, crosses that look like a combination of Christ on a cross with a halo, which is reminiscent of the two letters of the Greek word Christos, which is X, and what looks to us like a P, which is actually Chi, and then what is the letter P in Greek, which is P, C, and then what is it? It is, uh, I forget, but anyway, I used to know my Greek, Greek alphabet a little better. I'll show you that symbol for a moment so you understand. In the early days of so-called Christianity, as it spread among the Greeks, they would do like many college students do today. I don't do this, I never could, because it somehow was blasphemous to me, but a lot of students, instead of laboriously writing in longhand Christianity, when they're in a history class or something, or the Christian religion, will go X and then I-A-N, or X 
apostrophe TN or whatever they do. And the symbol in the Greek language was XP or Christos. And instead of putting the two separately, they finally began to combine them. You'll notice that it had all of those arms on it. And eventually it led toward dropping off the little part of the P here and moving these bars up and it sort of gradually became a cross as we know it today. This is not a gun sight. This is the ancient solar wheel, the Constantine wheel. It was adopted on coins by Emperor Constantine in the fourth century and which was the original derivation of the so-called Christian cross. It was a gradual evolutionary process. I'm going to show you the first place to which reference is made of him of affixing or impaling or hanging a crook or a criminal on an upright pale or a tree anywhere in the Bible. That is found back in Deuteronomy 21 and 22 and 3. It's cited by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and we'll turn to that and read it briefly and see what it says. And I'll show you the numbers in the exhaustive concordance. Any of you that want to do further research can look it up. This was talking about a person who had committed such a terrible sin that he was worthy of being put to death. Verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and he be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Now, it is obscure as to whether the method of putting him to death was in fact stoning, but that seems to be implied. And then his body was hung on a tree on display, but it was not to be there more than one day. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, or that is the curse of God, it says in the margin, that your land be not defiled, so the body would not be subject to putrefaction and so on, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance. The Apostle Paul, a little later on, talking about the curse of the death that was the most ignominious and the most agonizing of deaths that was invented by the ancient Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and others and used not only by the Romans but by the Jews when he said in the book of Galatians cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree now if you want to look the word tree look it up in an exhaustive concordance you will find it is number 6086 in the Hebrew portion and the exhaustive says the word is ates a tree from its firmness hence wood sticks Pine, plank, staff, stalk, stock, S-T-O-C-K as opposed to S-T-A-L-K, timber, tree, or wood. Literally, a hanging tree, like an oak or a sycamore. Is there anything at all in that word that suggests to you a cross? The word cross in the English language comes from a Latin word. Our language is made up mostly of Latin and Greek with some German and French, like the word silhouette is the name of an ancient freshman, uh, Frenchman. He might have been a freshman when he started in college. He was a Frenchman who was very, very skinny. And so he was so slight and so skinny that they claimed he had to stand twice in the same place to make a shadow. No, that isn't really true. But anyway, silhouette. And so we have that word in our language, and we don't know where it came from. But our language basically came from Latin and Greek. And the Greek word for cross is stauros, and the Latin word for cross is crux. However, I'm going to show you that the Greek word stauros does not and never did mean cross, but meant the same equivalent as the Hebrew word here, ates, which is a stick, a stock, a tree, or an upright pail, or a stake. 
Literally, this word meant any other tree. Now, it's the same word that is used everywhere in the Old Testament. For example, what about the Garden of Eden? And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A-T, same, same tree, same word. The tree, that was the tree of life in the garden. A-T's, same Hebrew word. The word tree, that every good tree that bears fruit is food for you in the book of Genesis. Same word, a tree. No question in our minds, but the tree means tree. That's a tree out there. It's what it means. It doesn't mean a, a man-made object with a cross piece on it. It means a tree, maybe an apple tree or a sycamore tree. Now, in the New Testament, every scripture in the New Testament which has the word cross in it, and I'm going to give them to you quickly, and I'll just show you that I looked them all up so you'll know they're all here. And they occur as follows in the Bible, and the Greek word is always stauros, and we're going to show you what it means in a moment. Matthew 10:38. Oh, I read them all. You can look them up. 16:24. A couple out of a mark is Mark 8:34 and 10:21. Luke 9:23 and 14:27. John 19:17. I won't do them all. There are a couple of dozen of them here, and they end up with Philippians, and then in Hebrews 12:2. I looked up every single place in the entire New Testament where the word cross occurs this morning. And every time the word occurs, it is the same identical Greek word, and that Greek word is as follows, stauros, S-T-A-U-R-O-S. And it means, literally, an upright tree, a pail, or a stake. Let me turn to Bullinger's Companion Bible and read his article under Appendix, Appendix 162, The Cross and Crucifixion. It's quite surprising. In the Greek New Testament, two words are used for the cross on which the Lord was put to death. The cross is in italics. The word stauros, which denotes an upright pail or stake to which criminals were nailed for execution. The word zulon, x-u-l-o-n, which generally denotes a piece of dead log or wood or timber for fuel or any other purpose. It is not like dendron, and that's where we have the word like rhododendron and so on, a flower, which is used of a living or a green tree. As this latter word zulon is used for the former stauros, it shows us that the meaning of each is exactly the same. The verb stauru, s-t-a-u-r-o-o, means to drive stakes. Our English word cross is the translation of the Latin crux. But the Greek stauros no more means a crux than the word stick means crutch. They may be made of the same material. To some people, they may even look a little alike. A person might pick up a stick and crip along on it. But etymologically, the two words do not derive one from the other. Homer uses the word stauros of an ordinary pole or stake or a single piece of timber. And this is the meaning and usage of the word throughout the Greek classics. It never means two pieces of timber placed across one another at any angle, but always of one piece alone. Hence the use of the word zulon in connection with the manner of the Lord's death and rendered not cross, but tree in Acts 5.30, Acts 10.39. Acts 13.29, Galatians 3.13, and 1 Peter 2.24. In every one of those places, even the translators knew that that Greek word could not be rendered in the English language cross because it did not come from that original derivation but from a Greek word that meant tree. They simply would hew off the limbs of the tree, form it into a stake of sufficient height, maybe 16, 20 or more feet, drive the stake into the ground, 
sometimes driving the nails through the feet and the hands of the criminal while it lay on the ground and then lift it into the air, which is strongly suspected to be the method of Christ's crucifixion. Why? Because he said, if I be lifted up, then will I draw all men unto me. Wouldn't it be the crowning achievement of Satan the devil if in the very most revered symbol, the actual sign, seal, badge, identifying symbol of the so-called Christian religion, he had succeeded in so corrupting it as to substitute cleverly an absolute pagan symbol and to have millions of human beings looking to it, wearing it, having it on the cover of their Bibles, the doorway and the top of their church, walking into and worshiping in buildings so designed, and yet the origin of that symbol is pagan to the core, that would be the crowning achievement of deception, wouldn't it? And of course, remember, I'm not being dogmatic. I'm not saying you must believe what I am reporting to you today. I'm saying these are my findings. And I think if you research books, whether they are the same ones or others along the same line, that they will also be your findings. There is nothing, still reading Article 162 in Bullinger's Companion Bible, there is nothing in the Greek of the New Testament even to imply two pieces of timber. The letter Chi, X, the initial of the word Christ, Christos, was originally used for his name, or X and then the P, as I showed you. This was superseded by the symbols I showed you, with the P and the X below, and even the first of these had four equal arms. These crosses were used as symbols of the Babylonian sun god, and then he showed the circle and the X, almost like a Mercedes symbol, or a gun sight, and are first seen on a coin of Julius Caesar, 144 B.C., and then on a coin struck by Caesar's heir, Augustus, about 20 B.C., all before the time of Christ. It was called the solar wheel. On the coins of Constantine, the most frequent symbol is the X and the P, as I showed you, combined, but the same symbol is used without the surrounding circle, and with the four equal arms, vertical and horizontal. And this was the symbol specially venerated as the solar wheel. It should be stated that Constantine was a sun god worshiper, and would not enter the church till some quarter of a century after the legend of his having seen such a cross in the heavens. Now Eusebius, who was one of the so-called Anti-Nicene Fathers, and I have the entire collection at home, Arnobius and Justin Martyr and all of these men that were called the Anti-Nicene, meaning those who wrote prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., or those who wrote after the time of John in about 92 A.D., and after his student Polycarp, whose writings are also in the Anti-Nicene Father, and Eusebius was one of those, and wrote of that alleged vision where a sun god worshiper seemed to see in the heavens a cross, and so adapted it as the symbol of his belief now, not in the sun, S-U-N, God, but in the sun, S-O-N, of God, and used the very same symbol. The evidence is same, is the same as to the pre-Christian phallic symbol in Asia, Africa, and Egypt. Whether we consult Nineveh, by the very revered and admired Sir Layard, or Manners and Customs of the Ancient Egyptians by Gardner Wilkinson. And then he lists a lot of other authorities that also attest to the same thing. The catacombs in Rome, and I've been there, they are 
like so many huge labyrinths and caves tunneled all underneath various parts of Rome and are absolutely frightening and just it's awesome when you go down there because you see thousands of bones and skulls and leg bones all stacked up in little niches and you're down there with these lights and this cleric taking you through this dingy underground cave wondering if he's going to collapse on you at any moment and you realize that the so-called Christians of those third and fourth centuries in Rome are actually living in these holes in the ground never coming up except once in a while at night and the people live their entire lives in these catacombs and never emerged above ground for fear of losing their lives it just breaks your heart because you see all these little clay uh, olive oil lamps that are stacked in there by their thousands and the bones the accumulation of generations of people that lived there well of course they lived there and they worshiped there and so on and maybe some of them were real Christians and maybe some of them were not but the testimony from history is that the catacombs in Rome show that Christ is never represented there in the catacombs as hanging on a cross and the cross itself is only portrayed in a veiled and a very hesitating manner in the Egyptian churches the cross was a pagan symbol of life borrowed by the Christians and interpreted in the pagan manner in his letters from Rome Dean Bergen says I question whether a cross occurs on any Christian monument of the first four centuries quite a statement he questioned whether the symbol of a cross occurs for longer than two times the national history of the United States following the crucifixion if that's the word we should use of Jesus Christ finally he says the invention of the cross by Helena the mother of Constantine in 326 though it means her finding of the cross in which she claimed to have actually found the original cross on which Christ was crucified well of course the Romish church has enough wood to build 45 room houses in churches all over the, the, the world that claim to have a splinter of the cross and of course enough nails to put to death half of the Chinese army but be that as it may they have their relics and they claim that they're all part of the original one but the invention of that cross in pre-Christian times and the invention of its use in later times are truths of which we need to be reminded in this present day. The evidence is thus complete that the Lord was put to death upon an upright stake and not on two pieces of timber placed at any angle. Bullinger's Companion Bible, not Garner Ted Armstrong. I did not write that. There's another, another interesting article, quite a lengthy one, I'll only quote from it briefly in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 11th edition, under the article, Cross. It gives, too, the origin of the swastika, or the crooked cross, or the tau cross, named after the letter tau in the Greek language that has a foot on it, and by putting two of those together, you have a swastika. And it gives you the origin of the entire symbol. Cross, the meaning ordinarily attached to the word cross, is that of a figure composed of two or more lines which intersect or touch each other transversely. Thus, two pieces of wood or other material, and he is quoting from the Latin word crux, so placed in juxtaposition to one another, are understood to form a cross. It should be noted, however, that when Lipsius and other writers speak of the single upright stake to which criminals were bound as a cross, and to such a stake the name crux simplex has been applied meaning simple crux or crux without the cross piece or upright pale. The usual conception, however, of a cross is that of a compound figure. 
Punishment by crucifixion was widely employed in ancient times. It was known to have been used by the Assyrians, Egyptians, Persians, by the Greeks, Carthaginians, and Macedonians, and from the very early time by the Romans. It has been thought, too, that crucifixion was used by the Jews. Two methods were followed in the, of, in the infliction of punishment of crucifixion. In both of these, the criminal was first of all stripped naked, bound to an upright stake where he was cruelly scourged with an implement formed of strips of leather having pieces of iron or some other material. And not merely was the flesh often stripped from the bones, but even the entrails partly protruded, and the anatomy of the body was disclosed. In this pitiable state he was reclothed, and if able to do so, was made to drag the stake to the place of execution where he was either fastened to it or impaled upon it and left to die. In this method, where a single stake was employed, we have the crux simplex of Lipsius, and they go on to explain the Roman version of the cross. From its simplicity of form, dropping down a few paragraphs, the cross has been used both as a religious symbol and as an ornament from the dawn of man's civilization. Various objects dating from periods long anterior to the Christian era, long before Christ, have been found, marked with crosses of different designs in almost every part of the world. Do you know that the swastika was a common sign of the Plains Indians of the United States? Do you know that the Sioux Indian painted swastikas on the hips of their horses? Do you know that in ancient India and southeastern Asia, in China and Japan, you find the swastika and symbols of the cross, or the crooked cross? Also, you find it in ancient England, in pre-Christian England. The use of the cross as a religious symbol in pre-Christian times and among non-Christian peoples may probably be regarded as almost universal and in many cases connected with some form of nature worship. Two of the forms of the pre-Christian cross that are perhaps most frequently met with are the towel cross, so named from its resemblance to the Greek capital letter T, and the swastika or philfot, which was an old English word from the Greek, uh, an English word representing the broken foot, philfot of the cross that they found on some old shrines or places of worship in England in the pre-Christian period. The cross as a device in different forms and often enclosed in a circle is of frequent occurrence on coins and medals of pre-Christian date in France and elsewhere. Another comment, the Christians of early times were wont to trace in things around them hidden prophetical allusions to the truth of their faith, and such a testimony they seem to have readily recognized in the use of the cross as a religious emblem by those whose employment of it betokened a belief almost repugnant to their own. Another article, it was not till the time of Constantine that the cross was ever publicly used as the symbol of the Christian religion, into the 330s A.D. And there is a great deal more about the article cross. Of course there are a great number of other sources to look up, but they're all going to basically say the same thing because these sources quote all the way back to Eusebius and some of the earliest writers in history and after all they cannot change history and they cannot change archaeology. There has never been discovered prior to the time of Constantine, neither in the catacombs of Rome or in any of the Middle Eastern cities, a cross as a symbol of the instrument of the death of Jesus Christ. And yet today, in the modern world of Catholicism and Protestantism, the cross is the major symbol of Christianity. To go along to give you a few more explanations, let's turn to Matthew 26 and verse 2 in the New Testament. I won't bore you with giving you every one of the scriptures where both the word crucified, I've looked them all up this morning, or the word crucifixion, or the word tree, or stake, or cross is used. But there are quite a number, and I have all of them listed 
and have looked them all up. Crucified in Matthew 26 and verse 2 it says this, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now that's an English word you're reading, but it comes from a Latin word that means cruxified. But the Latin was translated from the Greek, and when you look up the Greek, here's what it says. The exhaustive concordance listed under, norm, uh, under number 4717. Stauroo, S-T-A-U-R-O-O. Derived from 4716, the word just before it, which is stauros. Stauroo means to impale, to affix to a pale, to hang or nail upon to a tree. That is the meaning of that word crucified. It was spoken in either Aramaic or Greek. It was not spoken in Latin. And there is absolutely less derivation from the Greek word stauro or stauru to the Latin word crux. One means an upright pale, the other means a cross, than there is from fan to floor. There is no connection whatsoever. And so it is true of every other place in the New Testament where the word appears. There are many such scriptures, Matthew 27, and verses 22, 23, 26, and 35. In that chapter, there are four places where the word stauru is used. In Mark 15, 15, and 24, the same word is used. Well, let's turn to Matthew 27, verse 44, where a slightly different form of the word is used. Matthew 27, and verse 44. It says here, the thieves also which were crucified, we're reading English, translated out of the Raz Dawei Bible, which came from the Latin version, crucified, but it was written originally in Greek, and we're reading a Greek word, stauru. The thieves also which were stauru with him cast the same in his teeth. Which word was that? Slightly different. Over in the exhaustive concordance again, it reads, Sustauru, merely has a prefix on it. And it means to be impaled in company with. That's all it means, more than one. Sustauru. In Acts 2 and verse 23, turning to the end of the Gospels to Acts, the second chapter in verse 23, we read another word in the English language. It appears to be the same, but it's slightly different in the Greek. Acts 2 and 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Remember, this was written in the Greek language originally. We now have it in English. But the Greek is 4362 in the exhaustive, and it is P-R-O-S-P-E-G-N-U-M-I, prospegnumai. It means to fasten to, to impale. Now, that does not mean to crucify. If you affix a body to an upright pale, P-A-L-E, or post, or stock, or stick, or stake, or the portion of a tree that is only its trunk without any branches there, you have not crucified. You have impaled, but there are various methods of impaling. You have affixed to a pale. One other word, the only place that this is used in the entirety of the Bible is in Hebrews 6 and verse 6, and it says as follows, If they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. And it means exactly as you might suppose. It means to re-crucify in the original Greek. Any of you heard of the church called the Anabaptists back in the early American colonial days? They were called Anna because the Greek prefix Anna, A-N-A, means to do it over again. So if they baptized as an infant, the Baptists of that day came along and very rightfully discovered in the Bible that baptism should come only after repentance. 
And the repentance is a conscience situation involving a, a mature adult human being who comes to understand what is sin and that he ought to repent of sin and makes the conscious decision to be baptized. And so they said, no, we will baptize only when a person is an adult. But since all of those adults had already been baptized by common practice to start a little infants by sprinkling in, in maybe the church with a basin and the holy water and a priest there, this church became known as the Anabaptists, those who baptized again. Well, this Greek word appears, number 338 in the exhaustive, and it's anastauru. It's stauru with ana in front of it. It means to impale anew or to affix to a pale all over again. And so it says in the Bible that if these who fall away and are impossible to restore to God's truth fall away, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. And the Greek word was anastauru, impale or affixed to a pale, not cruxify. Every place in the English language where the word cross or crucify appears, it derives originally from the Greek, and the Greek word does not mean cross. It means upright, pale. Now what are we going to do with this knowledge? What are we supposed to do with it? Are we supposed to go out here and attack everyone we see wearing a medallion as a cross? The answer is absolutely not. Of course not. Any more than I would go over to Jordan and attack every image of Muhammad or attack every person who I see bowing and praying at the time that the midnight haranguer comes on the loudspeaker and the call to prayer occurs about six times a day in Jordan. You simply would not think of doing that. The Apostle Paul gives us quite a lesson in that. He tells us in the book of Romans, talking about meat that was offered to idols in sacrifice, that the idol is nothing. And he tried to show Christians that it's perfectly all right for you, so long as your conscience is not bothered. And you understand that an idol is utterly powerless. That an idol has all the life of that screen over there or this dead stone behind me. And that because a man has taken a chisel and a mallet and he's made a leering face out of the stone, that stone has no power to contaminate your meat. The man who went through a ceremony and turned around three times and held his hands in a steeple and said some words to Vishnu or to uh, Krishna or to Dagon or to Baal and then slit the throat of the bull and then dedicated a piece of the bloody meat and then cut it up and had a feast in the temple did not taint the meat. It didn't change the character of the meat. A Christian could sit right there at that table and eat a steak in the presence of that stupid idol. And the Apostle Paul made it clear the idol didn't taint the meat and wouldn't have the power to do anything at all to your digestion of it. So you were not to become unnecessarily awed by things that really have no meaning to you. An idol is merely an idol. It is nothing. But a man-made piece of stone or wood which has no life is utterly futile and has not the power to contaminate you. You are not a partaker of someone else's sin because you enter a building where a cross is present. Any more than you're a partaker of someone else's sin if you enter the supermarket where every other human being in there is a Sabbath breaker. You just are not. Our job is to preach the gospel, the good news of the coming kingdom of God, which has to do with the death of Jesus Christ, why he died, the fact that he is alive today and what his life means and that we are saved not by his death but by his life. And that I find most interesting of all. 
The fact that the Bible says that, and so few so-called Christians even know it, is fascinating to me, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth does not save us by his death. And that statement would shock millions of so-called Christians. Let's turn to the book of Romans in conclusion in the fifth chapter. It says, beginning in the fifth chapter of Romans, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification means having the removal of past guilt. Okay, you've done something in the past, you're guilty. If you repent of it, then you are justified. Now you can start out fresh. You've turned over a new leaf. You've got a brand new start. Does that now mean you do not have to obey the law? If you go down to traffic court and the judge says, I understand the circumstances, your wife was pregnant, you were rushing to the hospital, the officer gave you a ticket, he chased you all the way to the hospital parking lot, so therefore we're going to let you go, case dismissed, there was no crime committed here. Does that mean he just gave you permission to run every stoplight and to break every speed record from now on for the rest of your life? Of course not. It meant he forgave you your past act because of the circumstances, but now you go out a free citizen and you're required to obey all the stop signs and all the traffic laws. And so it is in the Word of God. When you are forgiven of the sins of the past, you are made right. You've got everything squared away with God. You are justified. And from now on, you must live according to the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. And, of course, they are greatly magnified by Christ in the New Testament and made far more binding than they are in the letter alone. Verse 2, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now in verse 6, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died, and of course he died a terrible and a horrible death, on an upright pale, not on a cross, for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Yes, that's been true in the military. People have literally thrown themselves on a hand grenade to save their buddies. People have sacrificed themselves to save a loved one. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, not saved, only made right, squared away, turn over a new leaf, have an opportunity for a fresh start, and have your guilty past completely wiped out. Now you've got the forward part, the future, to be concerned with. The past is squared away and taken care of. Now that you're justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Does the blood of Christ save you then? Verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be in the future, we shall be saved by his life. Why is it that the entire so-called Christian world does not understand that scripture, and that the entire Christian world does not understand the true symbol? of Christianity. What is that symbol? What should it be? Is it really a cross? Do you know that the cross is a pagan, Babylonian, Egyptian, Roman, Syrian, Indian symbol of sun worship and actually was even a phallic symbol in ancient times?
Do you know that it was adapted and adopted and brought into Christianity by a sun worshiper named Constantine? And that not once in any Christian literature, on any monuments, in any artifacts, and even in the catacombs of Rome, preserved for all of those centuries, has a cross appeared prior to the third century, this side of Jesus Christ, actually up into nearly 400 years from the time of the original death of the Lord and Savior, until such a symbol appears in connection with his death. Isn't it the most master stroke of Satan the devil's great deception that instead of convicting and convincing Christians to wear the symbol of his life, that they wear the symbol of his death, and it is a pagan and a false symbol instead of a true and a correct one? What should the symbol of a true Christian be? If it says we are saved by his life, and if it says, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if it says we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that if we are to actually take on his very personality and his very character, and he is to live his life over again within, within us, then what is the symbol of a Christian? But the life that you live, the look on your face, the look that comes out of your eyes, the way you treat people, the way you live is the symbol of a Christian. Your honesty, your integrity, your generosity, your humility, your kindness, your meekness, the love that you evince toward others, the lack of rancor and anger, the lack of avarice or cunning or greed. What shines out of your face, out of your eyes, and out of your character is the true Christian symbol, and it's a symbol of the life of Jesus Christ, not of his death. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to go about revering symbols of what really, in practical fact, the way God looks at it, is the ugliest, most wretched artifact, the ugliest symbol, the most hideous, rotten piece of man-made material you can ever imagine would be a tree reared into the sky upon which our Savior was affixed by nails. It's not a beautiful symbol. It's an ugly one. The beautiful symbol is his life. And what we are to be showing and demonstrating by our lives is the life of Jesus Christ and not his death. As I've said, I was going to show you some things that might be just about as shocking to you as telling you you're not really you. But you were mixed up in the hospital. And yet I did not write any of these original documents. And I am not the author of these sources. It's merely what I discovered in my research. And I have no doubt, if you're willing to research the subject yourself, that you will discover the same thing, that the deception is complete all the way to the symbol of Christianity.